with us with enough sense, enough wisdom, enough discernment to understand how to apply what we're learning, what we've learned before, here and onward. So we are students of the way. During the ninth century uh, there lived a great Zen master, Zhangshu Shibei. At one time, a monk approached his monastery and asked, Venerable Master, please, will you point out the gate by which I may enter? And the Master said, Do you hear the sound of the water of Yan Creek? And the monk said, Yes, I can. And the Master said, You may enter that way. That will be your entry. I love this teaching because it's so apt and it points very much to what we have to do. We have to find the gate, the entry point. Where is the entry point? It's right here. We don't have Yan Creek, but we have Chapin Mill Rain. We hear the rain tapping on the roof. Any phenomena, any experience through any of our five sense doors and thought, the mind, are the entry point. That's where we enter into the practice, in that moment. It's not in the future. It's not in the past. It's not left, it's not right, it's not above, it's not below. It's just right here, our very breath, or the very object upon which we're focusing, whether it's external or internal, that is our entry point. We don't have to try to make it into something special. It's the most ordinary experience that we have at this moment, present moment awareness. 
Never lose that. We don't have to travel long distances or have a lot of complex instructions. It's like the Tibetan nun who has one phrase that she chants. That's it, just one phrase. And another example, a master asks his student, how many suttas do you read every day? And the student says, five or six. And the master says, then you cannot read scriptures. And the student says, well, how many suttas do you read? And the master says, I read one word every day. One word. One word. You could try using one word to bring up the breath, like bhutto, bhutto, in a breath, bhutto, simple. Somebody asked about using mantra, it's very helpful. To keep it so simple that we can land in one place and stop the mind from distracting into fragmented points. And the fragmentation of thought and the desire for muchness, for a lot, disables us in the sense that we cannot consolidate our energy. So our virtue and our mindfulness, supported by our noble effort, helps us to be able to consolidate on one point. Now this happens to remind me of a very beautiful phrase from Jesus himself, where he says, we have to pass through the eye of a needle to get liberation. The freedom is to go through something that invisible, almost. And it essentially is invisible. When we refine and refine and refine the mind and purify and purify, we are left only with one word or one, one tiny little gate. And then there's nothing to pass through. Because that's what we essentially have to reduce our sense of self to to nothing, so that we can get through. It's a paradoxical thing. What is this being nothing? Well, it's, it's just understanding the truth of the way, which is to let go and surrender to the process in such a way that, that no one is hanging on, because no one, nobody, nobody or nobody gets enlightened, for sure. We just have to wrap our minds around that just for a second and let it go. The words are not important. What will help us to understand that is diving into the depths of the present moment. It's like an ocean. We think it's something very constricted here, somehow in between the upper lip and the nostrils or at our belly, or in this little fathom-long body. But many of you may have already had a taste or come to a, a space, a spaciousness within your heart which has no boundaries or feels rather boundless. That boundarylessness is part of the process of surrendering. We begin to see that we have the capacity to know much more, much beyond this fathom-long body. 
and what we consider the mind to be, because we don't know the mind until we dive into the breath and begin to experience the mind itself when the breath is known in its deepest way, in its most refined way, to the point where there is no breath. There's no definition of form. I don't mean to jump ahead or make it sound too mysterious, but I just want to encourage you that these are the gateways. They may sound unimpressive. You mean just just being with the breath is going to help to release me from all my stress and tension and find a peaceful abiding in my own heart? Yes. Yes, that is possible. And it'll help to diffuse and dissolve away fear, anger, stress, hostility, and the burden of life. Yes, this is possible. All these benefits are possible if we can let go enough to trust the present moment. Not the future, not the past, which is what we've been taught. So, with this particular approach in Vipassana, it's the path of developing wisdom, we have to have enough wisdom to get here. You've already come through the gate of the monastery. Here you are in the heart, in the core of the monastery or the retreat center or the meditation, this sacred space, this hall where thousands of beings over many years have come and practiced intensively. So the energy of this space is very special. We've come to an ancestral home because these are ancient teachings. And what we try to learn is how to find this home within us. Here's the good environment, a suitable environment. Now we have to translate that into developing these qualities within us. One of the most precious qualities, I mentioned trust, and trust translates into a faith that is ardent, I would say, zealous. This kind of practice is very similar to and synergistic with many mystical practices. I've practiced with contemplative nuns, with the Sufis and the mystic Christians. When I was a young nun, I studied the Philokalia, which is many of the Desert Fathers' sayings. I read the sayings of the ancient Zen masters. They're just so parallel paradoxical, mysterious teachings that turn you upside down and shake all the fixed views and preconceived notions out of our system and make us come to the one reality within us. We're all on different faces of a mountain, a tall mountain. Some of us are going up the east side and some of us are going up the north face. And the people who are going up the east side think that's the only way up the mountain. And they can't see that on the north face there's an expedition going up and they're getting to the top. And they get up there at different times so they never meet. Or maybe they do meet. Well, what are you doing? How did you get here? 
Well, I came up that way. That's impossible. But there you are. So you meet people from other spiritual paths who have so much illumination. They're luminous. They're radiant. How did that happen? Well, in the texts, there's a phrase that's used to describe the Eightfold Path, ekayanomago. And that phrase is translated in a few ways. And one of them, in earlier times, it was presented to me like, this is the only way to get enlightened. And that sounded very narrow. It leaves out such a huge chunk of humanity. How can we do that? It sounded quite conceited. Then I heard a different translation, which I really believe this is correct, that this way only leads to enlightenment. That anyone who practices the Eightfold Noble Path will arrive, will gradually realize the deathless, will become fully awake. So I like to hold it that way. We're all scaling this enormous peak and we may be using different kinds of equipment. Maybe some people are landing on top with a helicopter. Easy way. <laughs> but most of us are just slowly, slowly struggling up, up the slopes, sometimes falling down and dusting ourselves off and getting back up there and struggle, struggle, struggle. Like Chris beautifully described it, like a peacock pecking at a glass window and sometimes it feels effortless. So let's go back to that pecking. We're pecking away here at the seemingly impenetrable wall or, or barricade that prevents us from getting in. So we're in the monastery. Now we have another gate to find, and that's the way into the heart. But the obstructions are so big. Thinking, 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 thinking. Pondering, 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 remembering, reminiscing, getting on the breath, it's, it's nice, it's clear, it's easy. What am I going to do when I get out of here? Oops! Back on the breath. Come on, breath, breath. Butto, butto. Into the breath. Nowhere else to think, oh, back is so sore, I didn't sleep enough. It's because these chairs, this, there's not enough air in this room. I'm suffocating. Breath. Where's the breath? The mind keeps interrupting, or the, the untrained mind, the untamed mind, the relentless current, it's like a torrent. It's like Niagara Falls. It doesn't stop. Come on, get me out of here. I've got to stop. And we fight. We're in armed battle with these thoughts or these feelings of resistance or overwhelm, memories that disturb us, emotions that we didn't realize exist, suddenly come crashing through the gate and barricade the door. We cannot just bask in the light of the present moment. And we, we feel like we can't do it. It's too much. I'm out of here. I'll try yoga. Or some other. <laughs> Any, anything. I'll, I'll be a Christian mystic. <laughs> anything but this. No. It's because we've forgotten PMA, present moment awareness, and we just have to remember it for one second, one millisecond, and bring up a sense of love. Think of one blessing in your life. 
if a photograph or an image of someone you don't like comes up in your mind, then think of one quality that that person has, one good thing that that person has, or feel compassion. If you can't think of one good thing, then think the poor guy hasn't got a single good quality. <laughs> you can have some compassion and think this person too was born, is full of ignorance, and is going to die unhappy. And you can feel compassion for that person because you're going to get enlightened. <laughs> but if you cannot feel compassion for that person, then the present moment will never be properly attended to. You're like a nurse that's forgotten its patient, or a mother that's abandoned its crying child. You're busy watching TV and the kid is yelling in the next room. This is, we have to tend to our most important duty. And for this, we need the quality of chanda. This is the first basis of success, chanda. Chanda means yes. It's yes, it's a vote. You want to devote your heart to this fully, not halfway, not one quarter, not maybe, not I'm, I'm just testing the water here because I'm not sure, because that's a hindrance, that is doubt. And I can't do it, that's a judgment. That's the self arising and shutting the gate. I'm too tired, that's lack of energy, that's exhaustion, but it's a hindrance, it's an opinion. Actually, we have so much energy. If we can really rest with contentment and a sense of compassion for ourselves, this is the hardest mountain in the, in the universe for any being in any realm to climb, let alone uh, meager, humble humans that we are. Insects can climb it, dogs can climb it, any other lower realm beings cannot even come to the base of this mountain. But we human beings are endowed with animal nature and this homo sapien nature which gives us the wisdom to know this is the entry point. Like the Master said, you hear that sound, that's the way in. So don't forget present moment awareness and say yes, that you want this. You're, you're giving your approval to climb, to escalate the heart, to uplift it from the mud and the, the confusion of daily worldly life, the stress. We want the way out, the way up, the uplift, the awakening from that. We want it. Chanda. In our monastic Vinaya, Chanda is a very important word when there's a meeting of the monastics every two weeks, twice a month at the new moon and the full moon, we meet to recite our rule, which is quite long and extensive. And this helps us to reflect on our intentions, our purity, our conduct and speech. If we're too sick to attend the meeting, we send our chanda, which means whatever the community decides, we say yes to that. We trust their wisdom, and we just send our yes. So here, we're sending the yes into the heart. Come on, Chanda. I say yes. This is very important. And why is it? Because it's an auto-suggestion. 
Have you ever said to yourself when you're going to sleep at night, I really need to wake up tomorrow morning at 4 a.m. And so you set your alarm clock, mistakenly you set it for 4 p.m. And then at 4 a.m. you wake up and you look at the clock, you wonder why isn't it ringing? But you're awake because you auto-suggested to wake up and the mind really heard that message and followed it. That's how suggestive we are. That's scary. Because think about how much the world keeps convincing us, converting us to worldly aims and values through advertisements because we are so easy to convince. But here we are, we are going against that stream towards a spiritual awakening and we've been convinced, we convince ourselves that this is, yes, this is right. This will heal me. The world cannot heal me in this way. And so we agree. We like make a little deep, silent agreement and we step up to the gate and we start to open it. Yes, chanda. This is an ascent. It's an ascension. It's a rising up like a lotus flower that rises up out of the mud, the muddy waters of the world. Just like when a farmer plants a field, the farmer will put compost, the most beautiful, fertile earth. Anything will grow in that. We get these wonderful gardens, wonderful flowers. <laughs> in the spring, it's just a feast for the eyes, all these colors. It's the compost. The compost. So, out of the compost of the world, out of the compost of our foolishness and our errant ways, the failures, the wrong decisions we've made, out of all our flaws and, and faults and our critical mind and our crazed hindrance collection that keeps re-arising in front of us, we pull out this magnificent seedling and we water it out of that compost. We've composted. We've said yes, we're coming out of this muddy substance into a light, a knowledge, a vision, a wise seeing, moment by moment, moment by moment. The more we focus our mind with mindfulness on that bloom, on that seedling, the more it grows and grows and strengthens, just like the lotus flower. And this happens because of the second, the first was chanda, the second basis for spiritual power is a concentrated energy. This chanda arises because we focus so much, our yes is given with such a strong, heartfelt vote, like a devotion. We're really surrendering to this. We really, really want this. Not half-hearted, but full-hearted. So that's a concentrated way of wishing for something. And this kind of desire is wholesome. It's the wholesome desire that abandons unwholesome desire. It abandons unwholesome thoughts, unwholesome mind states that arise. It prevents them from arising, and if they've arisen, it dispels them. And it protects wholesome mind states, and if they've not arisen, it invites them. 
it helps the mind to be balanced, not too tight, not too slack. And so we can gain concentration and the mental activity around that is a certain willpower, not an I, me and mine willpower. It's just a determination, an insistence from a deep welling up of understanding that yes, this is, you can taste the fresh air from a distance, you know that this is the way. So then the second basis of spiritual power, the second basis for success on this climb, this ascent, is a concentration of energy. And this energy comes also from that same mental inclination towards the deathless, not towards what the world is offering, which is a lot of dead things. Look around our lives and we see a bunch of dead things that have give us no life and give us no true joy. And so through this kind of concentrated energy, let's say it's consolidated, and it means that we're soaked in it. It's like an immersion into it. Because concentration could also sound quite narrow. It isn't narrow. It has a wide berth. It's like a very safe place, a safe place of refuge in which we can function well with health, with a clean and good heart. And we're so focused. You know what happens when you focus? Remember as a kid, you take a magnifying glass and you sit in the sun and point it on a piece of paper and it catches fire. So in that way, our minds, when our energy is pointed towards Nibbana, towards ultimate sun, light, the light of the mind, then our hearts catch fire. And the energy doesn't have to be constructed or, or willed from ambition, which comes from ego and from over-striving. And then we can burn ourselves out. But this is not a burning out. This is a kind of fire that propels. It's a fuel. It's that kind of energy. It's so potent. When we use the mind, focus the mind towards Nibbana, towards the deathless, towards that which will free us from every bond that we experience, every boundary that limits our spiritual growth, this kind of natural energy will propel us forward and again help the seedling gain height and leverage in its climb towards the sun. That's the energy. And then the third one, we've already mentioned it, it's the power of the mind. The spiritual faculty of our conscious effort, our conscious knowing, our vision, our wise understanding that yes, pointing, yes, directing all our faculties, our wisdom faculty, our mindfulness faculty, our faith is helping the compass stay on true north. It goes this way a little bit, that way a little bit. We get distracted, we get pulled back, we, we lose hope, and then we remember, present moment awareness, and everything lines up, we balance it, we direct it, and we sally forth, we continue, we persevere, we never give up, we surrender until we die. You know, like if you were going to save the life of your child. 
or your own life. You would fight to the finish. You wouldn't let yourself drown. If you'd fallen on a mountain, you would cling with all your might to any little ledge that you could catch hold of to prevent yourself from falling off the mountain. Because it's so sacred, and the heart knows this. So this is a concentrated effort, a consolidated effort, a heroic effort. We're mountaineers. We're the elite mountaineers. This is our profession. We profess this. This is our main occupation, is to complete this task. And we give ourselves to it with our minds fully dedicated, fully attentive. Now this is where the real energy gets going when the mental power, the mind power, and its superpower, mindfulness, together with wisdom, uses that kind of resolve. It's a resolve, like we are definitely, there's a resolution, and that resolution keeps returning us. Resolve. We're going to resolve every problem, every obstacle. We're just going to resolve, return to this direction, following that inclination of the heart to the deathless. That's the third spiritual power that gives us a basis for success, a basis for accomplishment, an ability to consummate our highest wish. Though this is not particularly mentioned in the list of the Idipada or the four spiritual powers, I found that quintessential to the path is a quality of metta. It's like the oil in our engine. It's the very fabric of our ability to move in this way. It's goodwill. It's that quality of joyfulness around which all of these faculties gather and celebrate the ascent. Metta blesses it. Metta affirms it even more. Metta finds the exaltation in it. It rejoices in it. And so this propels us in great strides. We're heroically climbing, heroically knowing, deepening, penetrating through. We're no longer the woodpecker at the glass window. We're penetrating into the depths of this path. We're consummating all the factors of it. So going beyond the suffering to the, the fruits, the benefits of the path. And then, as we do that, we are using the fourth spiritual power, which is vimangsa, the first one, chanda virya, chitta, which is mind, and then vimangsa, which means the power of investigation. We're exploring. I may have mentioned what happens when you're doing an archaeological dig, and you've used some kind of radar equipment, and you know that here in this little patch of earth, in this patch of dirt, there are treasures buried. Or in this place in the ocean, there's a ship laden with gold that sunk 200 years ago, and you're going to dive for it. So you dig, you dig, or you dive, you dive, nothing. You keep diving and digging, diving, digging, nothing. Look what happened with the little Thai boys. They looked 
into the entry, into the cave, and they went deeper and deeper. They were swimming in muddy water. They went how many kilometers into the mountain? It took them several days before they could locate these children with their coach. They would not give up. That was just heroic. In the same way, we have to go beyond our abilities. We have to use our superpowers, every ounce of our strength, strength that we didn't know we had, as if we were saving the lives of our own child, or our own life, with that kind of verve, we penetrate through and we find a little bit of treasure. And that makes us excited, elated. We get a new wave of energy and a new wave of affirmation. Yes, we can do this. And new energy coming, the mind also is raised up and hurls itself forward into the path with greater zeal and joy and power to be able to penetrate through to the truth that is there for us to understand. It will be revealed to us. This is a gradual and a natural process. We're going into the depths of our own nature, like going into the depths of the ocean. Well, the heart is more vast than the ocean. It's a whole universe in there. So when we use this investigative power, we begin to find little samples of treasure. Then we get a taste of what the main, unimaginable, sublime, most exalted treasure is that may be waiting for us. But we don't desire it with greed or with pride and conceit. We just surrender to this amazing process that whittles us down. Actually what it does is it whittles down this sense of self so that when we arrive, we're empty. We're empty-handed. We arrive maybe with just dried tears and caked up dust all over the heart from the rigors of the journey. We arrive like babes, powerless, but empowered, fearless, awed, overjoyed, but silent, still, able to drink, able to taste, able to know that we've arrived. We will know. We can't not know. We need not ask. We ask and then we let go and receive what is given. If we pursue in this way, if we work diligently, unfailingly, untiringly, relentlessly, in this way, persevering, this is like a culminating perseverance, not just like a beginner, begin, get through the gate, and then collapse in a heap. No, we pick ourselves up day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, maybe lifetime after lifetime, it doesn't matter. Eventually, we will arrive in one wondrous gasp of, ah, it's right here. It's nowhere but right here. By being completely naked, stripped, down to the core, reduced to nothing, to ashes, 
And then out of those ashes there is the knowing, there is the ultimate truth is revealed. That exquisite jewel of the Buddha's wisdom, the awakening moment of knowing the Dhamma for what it is, that has been known by spiritual seekers and sages down through the ages. The Sangha of the ages have walked this path and consummated it, and we follow in their footsteps with humility, sometimes crawling. Like the way I crawled off a mountain when I was a young woman, with frozen feet crawling through the snow at night in the dark, just chanting, knee by knee, chanting, till I got to a little light and a village and collapsed in a heap and got rescued. Like that, we will be rescued. We will come to our true refuge. So those are the four spiritual powers that we can use to accomplish this path. This is a poem I wrote in the monastery back in 1996. It was right after the death of my mother, who I loved with all my heart, and who had such purity, I could never hold a candle to that, but my wish is someday to accomplish that kind of purity. Open enough to love, hold the sky the way a valley lies and reflects heaven or swallows darkness. Go with faith into the fire of solitude. Begin in the ending of one breath without wanting a beginning and wait in the flames to burn without being burned.